theme of our last two years has been believe and live. Because John told us in his gospel, that's what he wrote the whole thing for, namely that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that through believing we would have life in his name. That's what he said was the whole point of why he wrote the gospel. And so since that series ended four weeks ago, the last three Lord's Days has been devoted to the theme of God. Namely, God is love. That's been our theme. We've had three sermons in this series thus far, and counting today, we hope to have three more, six total. And then for two weeks, the Lord wills, we'll focus on how the worth of Christ should motivate us in two directions. We do the same thing in both directions, that is commend him whom we cherish. And so the two directions are geographically and chronologically generationally. And so Lord willing, after the God is Love series, we'll look at the worth of Christ and how his worth should have a direct impact, especially on our pocketbook. Our bank statements should show that Christ is our greatest treasure. And then after that, if the Lord wills, we'll begin a series entitled Yahweh is Salvation through the Old Testament book of Joshua. Now, I'm telling you all this because what I just said represents a whole lot of labor and prayer and discussion among your pastors. I'm also telling you this because digesting God's Christ-centered Word together as a congregation is God's ordinary means of grace. That means that God ordinarily accomplishes his extraordinary work. Deep in the lives of his people, together in Christ's churches, by churches ingesting Christ through his word. Christ ingested with his congregation leads to Christ exalted in our lives and Christ commended in the world. I love that it's raining outside. It's going to apply to my prayer in just a moment. When I said that we're now walking through a six-part series on God's love, and then I proceeded to say that Christ-centered preaching is God's ordinary means of growing us up in Jesus, that does not mean we should be ho-hum about it. Not ordinary as in no big deal. Not ordinary as in, yeah, what's new? Just another series of sermons and a lifetime of sermon listening, big deal. No, 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 no. The old dead guys, who I affectionately uh, appreciate, have helped me to see the beauty of Christ. And one of those old dead guys said, you will know that the third person of the Trinity, the Almighty God, God the Holy Spirit, a person, not an it, not a thing, not a ooze, a he, you will know that he is at work in a local church that's bought with the blood of Jesus by one special mark. The most evident, visible, tangible, 
you know it's the Holy Spirit doing the work in a local church will be, quote, a love for the true Jesus will be raised as high as possible in the hearts of all of his people. So whose heart in this room is he not holding that place of preeminence yet? When the Holy Spirit shows up at church, the second person of the Trinity will be exalted to the highest place in your heart. And Philippians 2 said that will yield the most glory to the Father. That is what the focus on God's extraordinary love should have been doing to our hearts for the last three weeks. After spending the three previous Lord's Days basking in God's love for us, we should be being changed, particularly in greater love to Christ. Counting today, we'll have, as I mentioned, three more weeks beneath that waterfall. Today is part one of a focus on one of the Father's favorite ways to refer to all who belong to his son. We are his beloved children. I want to ask you an important question as we turn our attention to his love, indeed to him who is love. Here's the question. Whether you're young or old, whether you've been to church many times or this is your first time, How are you seeking to take advantage of this sermon series? How are you working by the Spirit's power to appropriate the truth that's contained in the passages that have been put forth as our congregation's diet? What the old guys, another one would say, how are you giving generous cooperation to the Holy Spirit? If he wants to exalt Christ, and Jesus said that he does, how are you agging him on, daring him to do more of that in your soul? How are you surrendering to the Holy Spirit to massage the truth of God's love deep into your heart? May he capture our hearts today and arrest our souls today with divine love. And by rest, let me give you an illustration of what I mean. A couple years ago, our family was afforded an absurd blessing. We never would have been able to afford or, or do if we wanted to. A very generous friend afforded for our family to join them in Laguna Beach, California on Table Rock. Table Rock juts out into the Pacific Ocean just south of Los Angeles, and the waves of the Pacific crash against that rock morning, noon, and night and the rock doesn't move. It's illegal to step onto that rock. The condominium we were in was right over that rock. Many people ignore the legalities, especially young people. And they go out onto that rock and they jump off of it. One night we were there and we were in this wall of window condominium overlooking table rock and the waves crashing on it and the mist even spraying up onto the ledge where we were standing and a group of inebriated young people walked out to that rock. And one after the other they jumped off of it. 
and the waves and the current work such in that little cul-de-sac of a beach that it just takes you out and takes you in and takes you out and takes you in. And after about five to ten of those, you eventually wash up on shore. One man didn't make it. He jumped and he struggled and we watched. All my kids, arms on the ledge, watching a guy fight and struggle and flail, go down and up and down and up. And our host called 911 and in God's miraculous providence up at the top of the hill, which is about 500 stairs up, a paramedic was standing there. He heard the call, he ran down the stairs. Without a second thought, he jumped into the Pacific and by the grace of God was able to rescue this certainly drowning young man. That guy got arrested for illegally jumping. I guarantee you, he was the happiest man in the world to have ever been arrested. When the Holy Spirit becomes the Lord of your heart, the great evidence will be exuberant joy that Jesus is exalted in your heart. With that in mind, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of the living God. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Father, Arrest us by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I've really anticipated this passage. In fact, I've wanted to preach it for more than a decade here because of the way the Lord has helped me to dance under its light with joy. And um, I don't know that I'm ready yet to say anything that'll be intelligible, but I've prayed for help. But I did have a palpable sense that one of the best things, best services, best ways that I could serve you today would be to bless you long beyond today by helping you memorize this passage together. So we are going to go to school for a few moments. We're going to do it by section, section one, section two, section three. Color-coded in my notes, you are blue, yellow, and pink. Blue, don't repeat after me, but prepare to repeat after me. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. 
See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. Yellow middle section, that we would be called children of God. That we would be called children of God, pink, and such we are. Now that's round one. You get four rounds over here and three rounds over here. You get to play four times, you get to play three times. Everybody with me? Now you can repeat after me. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. That we would be called children of God. And such we are. Without my help. Okay, now we've got to speed up. This is the New American Standard translation. Yours may be a preferred other translation. I say you're welcome in advance. <laughs> For this reason, the Father does not know us. You're going to get that one in a moment. Because it did not know Him. Now we're going to start at the beginning after we practice one time. For this reason, the Father did not know us. For this reason because it did not know him. Now we're starting at the beginning, you ready? See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we And for this reason the Father does not know us because it did not know him. For this reason, the world <laughs> does not know. The Father definitely knows us. <laughs> okay. Now, that's just verse 1. I'll leave it to you and the Lord to see how far and if you want to continue with that exercise. If you'll get that verse, not only in your psyche, but in your soul, you can put it here. God can put it here. You'll be on a glorious pathway to knowing what it means to be loved by God. In verses 1 and 2, the apostle admires the love of God in making us believers, making us his children. And in verse 2, promising this future glorification that belonged to all who are in Jesus. What we are, what we will be, verse 1 and 2. Verse 3 is the here and now. And in verse 3, the apostle tells us what God is doing in the lives of all of his children, namely purifying us. And the way he's doing that is by fixing our hope completely on Christ, whom we soon shall see. So in three parts, going with the three verses, I invite you to consider one by one, what the Father has to say about His love. Verse 1, the point, I would word it this way, the greatness of God's love means that He cannot love you more than you are now loved. Now, to a lot of people, that doesn't actually sound like good news. I'll try to explain in a moment part of why that doesn't sound like good news, but I'm telling you the greatness of God's love is manifest in that He cannot love you more than He now does. Verse 1 begins, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. 
The word translated great, how great a love in the New American Standard is rendered what kind of love in the ESV, what great love in the NIV, what manner of love in the King James. It's the same word used in a very similar way in Luke chapter 7 when the loose woman anointed the feet of Jesus. She brought her alabaster vial, a very costly perfume. She proceeded to break it, pour it over the feet of Jesus. She wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, with her hair. And when one of the Pharisees who invited Jesus, saw this happening, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person, that's the same word, this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. What kind of person she is. That's what John's talking about. It's what sort of love this is, what great love, what manner of love, the type of love this is that the Father has. John said in verse 1, bestowed on us. That's a given, not in part. That's a showered, lavish, gifted, extraordinary, God-sized love. So for our first point, what I want to say is that the greatness, the what kind of love God has drenched on his children is a love that cannot be improved upon. He cannot love you more than you're now loved. That's our first point. The word bestowed, it's perfect active. Little nerdy language thing. I'm saying it to you so that you will know that God said it's totally complete. It's full, it's to the max. And I'm saying this is remarkably good news for God's children. Now, I said not everybody receives it that way, and here's one of the main reasons. Many of us would like, might think that we would feel more loved if I were to say to you, God will always be increasing in his love for you forever. He'll love you more tomorrow than he does today, and for eternity more than he did the eternity prior to that. That would actually be bad news. It would mean that his love is mutable, changeable, that it's fickle, that it can shift. But to say that he will not love us more does not at all mean that his love has stagnated. He has not grown cold in his love for you. Far from it. While we rightly say of our loved ones that we do grow in love for them. We love them more today than we did when we first came to love them. Brothers, your wife should be more beautiful to you at 80 than she was at 18. That's an increase of love. Not so with God. Here's the truth from verse 1. God's love is tantamount to God's nature. It is as He is. In our first series in this, in our first sermon in this series three weeks ago, we looked at 1 John 4.8, God is love. He loves because that's who he is. It's not just a thing that he does. It's intrinsic to his nature. And when God loves, he loves consistently with himself because God is love. In week two of this series, we saw that God has loved us from everlasting, and he's even wooed us. He has drawn us with his hesed, his covenant love. Jeremiah 31. Last week, we saw 26 times that his loving kindness endures forever, but today, 
in verse 1, we're beginning with a focus not on the duration of God's love, but on the quantity. It's a how much question. And here's God's power-packed answer to His love for you in terms of quantity. How great a love the Father has bestowed on us is seen, namely, in that we are called children of God. (laughs) That verse begins with see. See how great a love. Section 1 helped us memorize. That word see is sometimes translated behold. It's an imperative. It's a command. One lexicon said it's to take special notice of, to consider, to pay attention to, to concern yourself with, to take great pains, to be absorbed with this. Be dominated with this one thing. God calls you his child. Verse 1 does not say we will become his children. It says we are his children. It's as if John pauses at the end of verse 1 to explode into praise. He transitions from didactic to doxological, from teaching to worship. And he says, see how great a love the Father would bestow on us that we would be called children of God, period, pinned down, That's what we are. John leaves no doubt, Leon Morris says, we are what God calls us. The writer of the epistle, John, was known as the beloved disciple, loved by Jesus. In the Gospel of John, he never mentions his name, only that he, many agree, is the author who refers to himself as the beloved disciple. More than John knows John's own name, John knows John is loved by Jesus. The beloved disciple wants you to know, now I got to say it again, the beloved disciple, the disciple who knows that he's loved, wants you to know that Jesus does not love John any more than Jesus loves you. And the way I get that is the plural pronouns in the first phrase bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. He puts you in the same camp as him, and he knows he is loved. By virtue of including himself in that sentence, we can confidently say God has never loved anybody more than he loves you. Can't be improved upon. Before we leave verse 1, look at the last little phrase. For this reason... The world does not know us. Thank you all for correcting me a moment ago. Don't let me slip into like blurry preacher brain when I say heresy. (laughs) Stop me. (laughs) Yes, the Father loves you. The world does not know us. Why? Because it did not know Him. The word world, world does not know us. It's used 23 times in 1 John. It's used three different ways. Sometimes it refers to a ball of dirt and water on which you live, a planet. Sometimes it refers to all the people. And sometimes it refers to an evil system of unbelief in Christ. That third way is how John is using the word world in verse 1. The world doesn't know us. The people in it who are seduced by Satan... So that according to 2 Corinthians 4, 
They're blind to the glory of God in the face of Christ. That world doesn't know us. The evil, unbelieving world. John uses this word this way many times in 1 John chapter 3, verse 13. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. That's the people in it who are seduced by Satan, who have zero savor, zero appetite for the bounty of Christ. 1 John 4, you are from God, little children, and you have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. 1 John 5, we know that we're of God and that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. According to Romans 12, something's happening to you right now. You cannot shift the standard transmission of your life into neutral. You are either, according to Romans 12, being conformed to this world or you are being transformed by the renewing of your mind. One of those things is happening to you all the time. There is no neutral. You are either being shaped into the world's way of thinking to its system, you're being seduced by its lust, you're being drawn away from Christ, or you are seeing the beauty of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit and the expulsive power of a new affection and the world's cheap amateurish definition of satisfaction looks to you like sewage water and compared to the artesian well of the beauty and sufficiency of Christ. One of those is happening to you according to Romans 12. John says, the world doesn't know us because it didn't know him, immediately after saying we are loved by God as his own children. The world does not know us because it does not know our God. One young man in our congregation said to me about this verse when I asked him about it this week. This is a not yet member, young man in this church. God created us, yet he loves us as his own children. How? Why? We're totally undeserving of his love. In fact, we directly sin against him, yet he bestows his love to us. It also says in verse 1, the world doesn't know us, but we still have the love of God. So who cares if the whole world is against us as long as we have the love and acceptance of the only true God? That's what John's saying. Paul said, what should we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? The world doesn't know us, but God knows us. According to John 17, one day the whole world is going to put their hand over their mouth and they're going to be aware of God's love for you. What kind of love, if we ask Jesus, does the Father have for us? His answer, three times in John 17, he loves you with the same love with which he loves me. Jesus knows the Father loves you like that already. Father, I pray the love with which you love me may be in them. He knows the Father already loves you that way, and he prays that you'll know it. He also knows that the whole world will one day know it. That the world may know that the love with which you love me is in them. That's what Jesus said. So Jesus knows the Father loves you the same way he loves him. Jesus knows the whole world will know that the Father loves you the same way he loves him. 
And John 17 ends with one of the most staggering sentences ever penned in human history. You one day soon will be unable to unknow that you are as loved by the Father as Jesus is. That's the last verse of John 17, because Jesus will be in you forever. So our first point is the greatness of God's love means that he cannot love you more than you are now loved. Number two, verse two, the greatness of God's love is proven in that he cannot leave you as you now are. The greatness of God's love is proven in that he cannot leave you as you now are. While our world says the definition of love is to accept me as I am, the gospel says because God does love you now and cannot improve upon that love, he will not leave you as you are. Verse 2, beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet, it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. So I want you to notice that verse 2 promises the immediate transformation that's going to happen to you. Instantaneous, cataclysmic, once done, forever accomplished, when you see the returning Christ, your character, not your status, will be instantaneously changed. You are God's child, verse 1. Now we are his children, verse 2. You will be changed into his likeness, verse 2, when you see him. The greatness of God's love is seen in that he does not leave us as we are. If we were just getting acquainted, if I didn't know you, you didn't know me, and we were just introducing ourselves to one another, and I said, okay, I do this a lot. Uh, Tell me your life story in five bullet points. Born, raised, if you're an adult and married, got kids, whatever. Just boom, 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 boom. Give me the big picture, and then let's go back to the details. If I were to ask you to describe yourself to me in five phrases, what would you say? The most condensed, comprehensive, accurate explanation of yourself? I mean, I might say I'm, people, people tell me I'm a little tall, I got brownish graying hair, <laughs> my eyes are blue. John Newton, writer of the hymn, Amazing Grace, described himself in these five phrases. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. And I'm not what I once used to be. By the grace of God, I am what I am. You see how verse 2 spans the whole gamut of the Christian life? We, what we are and what we will be. Verse 3 tells us that we should also be becoming something. But verse 2 just starts at the beginning and goes to infinite ends of eternity future. Tells us what we are and it tells us what we will be. Now, verse 2, we are children of God. We will be like him when we see him. 
If you go a few blocks south of here and jump on the longest street that runs right through the heart of the city of Memphis, Poplar Avenue, and you just head east, before you get to the outer edge of the loop, just on the inside of that loop, if you're traveling east, there'll be a cemetery on the north side, on your left. Right off of Poplar, just about 20 paces into that cemetery, you would come to a tombstone that is the temporary holding spot of the bones of the most godly man I've ever known, Clyde Cranford. The most Christ-like, Bible-saturated, spent, I kid you not, all of his resources, time, energy, money, everything, to pour the bounty of Christ into other people. That's what he did for the last 14 years of his life. He actually had no income. He never raised money. God just met his needs. An amazing story. On his tombstone, you will find four words. This is what the most godly man I've known said is the most significant thing about him. A child of God. That is the greatest privilege of the gospel. He never reverse adopts. He never kicks anybody out of his family. When he brings you in, he brings you all the way in, finally and forever. J.I. Packer, another one of the most godly men I've ever benefited from in his ministry said, quote, adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. God only has one only begotten son. And through him, he has a myriad of sons that Revelation 19 says is so vast, it's innumerable. And all of us, as one big sea of nameless and faceless worshipers, will be looking at the Lamb who is on the throne that has made us God's children. How can you become God's child? I'm so glad you asked. As many as receive Jesus... To them, he gives the right to become children of God. John wrote in 1 John 5, just a few pages after where we're at now for our sermon text, if you have the Son of God, you have life. If you do not have the Son of God, you do not have life. Everything about the blessings of God are bound up in the God-man, the Lord Jesus, who bled and died and rose again to make you right with God forever and to be in his family. So if Packer's right, adoption's the highest privilege of the gospel. If Clyde had godliness spot on, to be a child of God is the grandest of all privileges. I wonder if you would pause and pray right now as I'm talking about two things. For those who feel like you're within the span of eligibility, would you just pray right now about becoming an adoptive parent? Ask God if he wants you to give a loving Christian home to one of the millions of already born kids who don't have one of those. And number two, would you freshly right now just ask God, is the pattern of my life 
the way you want me to spend the little vapor you've given me. Anywhere else, Lord, especially places that don't have the gospel? Any other context where I might be sent by a local church to see new ones started so that more people can treasure your son? Just ask him. Don't get lulled to sleep because you're already his child. When we're finally transformed, how is it going to happen? Verse 2 tells us, when he appears, we'll be like him. We are children of God now, verse 2, but it's not appeared as yet what we will be. But when he appears, we're going to be like him because, because, because we will see him just as he is. The transforming power of a sight of the glorified Christ will flip you into his image instantaneously. The appearing of Jesus is a gigantic deal in the Bible. Naturally so, because the return of Christ is an essential Christian doctrine. Deny his return, you cannot be a Christian. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Just eat, drink, and be merry if Jesus isn't coming back. But if he's coming back, it dominates everything about everything for everyone. Near the end of his life, Paul said, Jesus is going to give a crown of righteousness, quote, to all who have loved his appearing. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus is coming back for a select subset of humanity. We don't believe in universalism. Everybody's not going to heaven. Who's he coming back for, Hebrews 9? quote, those who eagerly wait for him. The Thessalonian church was told by Paul that he's coming back for two reasons. One of those two reasons is to be marveled at among all who have believed and to be glorified in his saints. Paul told the Thessalonians, I know you're real Christians, quote, because you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. The same theme which appears in our text in verse 2 shows up from John elsewhere in 1 John, the previous chapter, 2.28, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shriek away from him at his coming. We're ready for him to come back. We want him to come back. We know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we'll see him like he is. We say it a lot here. I've been trying to build to this point. I hope that you can hear it with fresh ears as if for the first time. God's rule is you will become like what you behold. The power of seeing the glorified Christ in his second advent will be so powerful that we will be instantaneously transformed into his likeness. Revelation 22.4 describes it as seeing his face. John 17.24 describes it as seeing his glory. 2 Corinthians 13.12 talks about seeing him face to face. One of the many great realities of the gospel is that this world is as close to hell as any Christian will ever get. And one of the great realities of the gospel is this world is as close to heaven as any unbeliever will ever get. But when he comes, the blood-bought realities will be fully realized 
All that Jesus purchased at Calvary will be appropriated forever. Between now and then, 1 Corinthians 2.9, we fix our eyes on eternal things. Because eye has not seen and ear has not heard, it has not entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. I don't know a lot, and I don't know why a lot of things happen to a lot of people who love Jesus in this side, on this side of eternity, but we do know this. Very soon you will be like him. Worship him. Just like your justification was instantaneous, once done, forever accomplished, so also your glorification is instantaneous. It will happen in a twinkling of an eye. In a nanosecond, you will be changed. Not a process. Once done, forever accomplished. So from now to then, verse 3 tells us what we do. Because we're God's loved children, because our Redeemer is coming back to make us fully like Him. That is... We will have an unrestrained capacity to delight with God in God, or we will love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we will love our fellow man as ourself. So from now to then, Paul said in Philippians, we eagerly wait for a Savior. The Lord Jesus who when he comes will, quote, transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power which he has to subject all things to himself, Philippians 3. Just boom, in an instant, one side of the Savior. It will happen with our first glimpse. How glorious then must it be after having had one glimpse and so cataclysmically and forever changed, how glorious must it be to see him in that glorified state forever? Sinless, delighting with God, in God, with God, ruling the angels because you see him as he is. I understand that we do struggle to see Jesus now, to fix our eyes on him as Hebrews commands us now, but one day, the struggle will be over. Your eyes will be fixed. And 1 Corinthians 13, 12 will be all you know face to face. He's not going to leave you like you are. And that's the evidence of his love. The final consideration, verse 3. The evidence of our future Christ-like transformation is a present fixedness of our hope on Jesus. We don't purify ourselves. He does the purifying. But he does it as our hope is riveted to Jesus. If you take your eyes off Christ, you can't be purified. You put your hope completely in him, 1 Peter 1 then he will do the purifying. But verse 3, I believe, argues this is the evidence that you're his loved child. This is the evidence that you're going to be changed into his likeness, verse 2, when he comes. You have your hope fixed on him. And he's changing you. Little by little, imperceptibly to you, you can't see it. Like watching the paint dry, like watching the grass grow. But I promise you, people around you can see. Do you reek with not a super spiritual 
me-centered, parading your righteousness before men, love for Jesus. Not what we're talking about. But do you have a 2 Corinthians 2 aroma of Christ? It just perfumes off your life because you've been basking in the ointment of his presence. This verse gives us the reason why fixing our hope on Jesus is the application of all applications. It's why we say around here all the time, we got one application, look to Christ. I know there's a lot of applications in the Bible. Don't steal, don't get drunk. Give to people who ask you, show hospitality, love your neighbor, study to show yourself approved to God, assemble together with your church family on every Lord's Day to worship Jesus, sacrificially, joyfully, give your money as a kingdom investment to see more Christ-centered local churches established around the world. There's a lot of practical commands in the Bible. I'm not ignoring any of them. But I do know, and you do know, you can do all those things without looking to Christ. But there's one thing about the Christian life that cannot be faked by a lost person. There's only one thing. We can fake just about everything else, but there's something you can't fake. Being dazzled with the glory of the Son of God. You can't fake that. And if you're busy doing for Jesus without ever looking to Jesus, then you've done it for all the wrong reasons, Jesus said. The more you look to Christ, the more you will want to emulate him in your obedience to your heavenly father. That's what being purified as he is pure looks like. The great privilege of the gospel is that you get to become a child of God. Penultimate. In a long list of a lot of other extraordinary blessings. The great privilege of the gospel is that you get to become a child of God. And children of God want to bear the family likeness of our elder brother, the Lord Jesus. Eyes on Jesus leads to a life that's pleasing to God. I could demonstrate from all sorts of passages of Scripture that looking to Christ is the dominating application of the entire Christian life. From justification to glorification, from entry to eternity. For example, in Numbers 21, Jesus referencing that passage, you begin the Christian race by looking to Christ on the cross. In 2 Corinthians 3, it's made evidence that you are in the race because you are beholding the glory of God in Christ as in a mirror. In Hebrews 12, entire churches, that book was written to a church, are to continue the race by looking to Jesus. Every pronoun in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 is plural. We run the race. We put our eyes on Jesus. In 1 John 3, right here, the race is finished when we are permitted to look upon him, and then it really begins. John 17, 24, when all we will delight in maximally forever is the glory of Christ. Matthew Henry said, the sons of God will be known in this life and be transformed in the next life by their view of Christ. So I'm going to say it again. You will become like what you behold. You cannot break that rule. It is fixed by God. The gravitational pull, the magnetic power of the primary love of your heart will shape you into its image. The devotion of your heart molds you into what you most love. 
And God's heart is cross-shaped. And the more you look on Christ, the more you're pressed like the tool and die into the mold of what God is like. And the beauty and the bounty of Christ perfumes off of our life in a way we couldn't fake, we couldn't manufacture. When you encounter Christ, He remains the same. You change. And you're transformed more and more. You're purified again and again, verse 3, into His likeness. From glory to glory, 2 Corinthians 3, just over and over, like waves of that Pacific crashing on that rock, never stopping. He's changing you. In future glory, being transformed fully into His likeness motivates our present purity. You kids and you adult kids know what it was like when you were going to have company at your house and mom made you clean everything up the day before, night before, morning of, dust, vacuum, mop, sweep, put up all the stuff because somebody's on their way. And this verse tells us because we know somebody's on his way. And our hope right now is totally fixed on the reality that our bridegroom is on his way, has a purifying effect. And Jesus spoke about this, blessed are the pure in heart. Why? What what do they get? They will see God. Everybody who has this hope fixed on Christ purifies himself as he is pure. Titus chapter 2, we wait for the blessed hope of Christ's appearing. Romans 8, we don't hope for what we see, we hope for what we don't see, and with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. This is how to be holy as God is holy, which by the way is a command of your God. How do you do that? You fix your hope on Christ, so proving you're his beloved child on your way to transformed into Christ's image, glory. Well, a young lady in our church who is a member, one of the youngest, I asked her what she thought about this passage and this is what she said. And I'll close with these words. We will be like him because we will see him just as he is. She writes, this should make us tremble at the feet of Jesus. We will be like him, three question marks. That's unimaginable. And yet through Christ, we will be made perfect as Christ is perfect. She concluded with these words, we will see him just as he is. This is what should make us tremble in fear and awe and rejoicing. Think about it, really think about it. It gives me a warm feeling in my stomach just thinking about it, seeing God as he is, the fact that this is made possible through the cross. What an undeserved blessing we have been given. Beloved, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. That we would be called children of God and such we are. For this reason the world doesn't know us because it didn't know Him. Now we are children of God. It has not appeared as yet what we will be. But when he comes, 
We're going to be just like Him because we'll see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, arrest us by the Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.